right, people, welcome to the Bizzles commentary for Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Couple things you should know before I count you down to the film. One, I adore this movie, and it is probably my favorite fantasy movie, not called The Lord of the Rings, and I'm not really sure what is close. The second thing you should know is that I'm not a Harry Potter guy. I didn't read the books before. I still haven't read them. I've seen a number of the movies, but not all of them with my sister. But when this one came out in 2004, my sister finally convinced me to go because she said this was the first book that was sort of like more adult and it was supposed to be darker and there were werewolves and it was going to be scary and there were like teenagers. And uh, But what really sold me was that I read that Alfonso Cuaron was directing it, who I had known from his first big movie, Itumama Tambien. While this movie um, would go on to be, by hair, the lowest grossing of the eight Harry Potter movies, and there's some reasons for that, uh, it is consistently at the top of the charts of both critics and hardcore fans, and even casual fans, who all agree that, while I think this is also one of people's favorite books, it's definitely people think is the best uh, of the Harry Potter movies. And I will go into detail during the film why I b- agree um, and believe that is indeed the case. I want to get us into the movie, but I just want to point out three things really quickly um, before I count us down. Uh, that really struck me when I first saw this movie and that continue to make an impression on me every time I watch it. The first is that it was a Harry Potter movie and yet when you watch it, it's a dark scary, morally ambiguous, sort of like teen horror coming-of-age film that Quaron was perfect for, as he talked about when he was interviewed, because in Itumama Tampien, he's telling a story about a, a pair of Mexican teens uh, who are becoming um, uh, men, or trying to become men. Here, he's dealing with some children becoming teenagers on the way to young adulthood, was absolutely the perfect person for this, uh, for this job, to open up the universe. They moved the production out of London and up into Scotland with tons of outdoor shooting. It felt real. Hogwarts, the entire campus and the world just felt huge and epic in scope in a way we had never seen before. The second thing that jumped out at me immediately in the first two minutes of this movie is Daniel Radcliffe. You know, you see the pictures on the books of the nerdy kid with the glasses. You don't expect him to be kind of a, you know, a, a wound up, uh, chip on his shoulder, kind of badass, you know, or, or at least like, you know, not taking shit from anyone, even though he gets pushed around and he's got loyal friends and they stick up for him and he sticks up for them. The whole dynamic with him and his his friends was, was amazing. And, and just the edge that Daniel Radcliffe brought to this role was one I was not expecting in a Harry Potter film. And it made him feel more like, you know, later Luke Skywalker than earlier Luke Skywalker. Um, And you'll hear in the commentary talk a little about those comparisons. So Radcliffe has a revelation, but most of all, 12-year-old girl named Emma Watson, who just steals the screen from minute one when she appears, playing Harry's best buddy, Hermione Granger, immediately was fiery, bold, fiercely loyal temperament, and uh, she stole the film. I mean, I remember those two really blowing me away, but because of J.K. Rowling's brilliant 
writing and narrative structure and character and plot arc, which makes her, you know, Hermione the the true badass and heroine of this story. Harry's almost along for the ride at points. It allows Emma Watson to just stride forth confidently as a fully formed actress. And all these years later, as happy as I am for Radcliffe and Emma Watson, who's now, you know, part of yet another billion dollar franchise with Beauty and the Beast, which as of today, when I'm recording this intro and uploading the podcast, April 13th, just crossed the billion dollar mark. Congrats, Emma, who's also a very, very empowered um, and active young woman who's who's an activist for for all causes, women and and otherwise, just an inspiring personality. Uh, You should read about you know how they had to convince her to take the beauty and the beast role and that you know it had to convey certain messages and uh and have complexities of character and and all those sorts of things daniel radcliffe has been in some very challenging roles including being an you know an undercover agent with a neo-nazi group almost like an american history x type thing i mean these two really come from an amazing stock um i could go on and on this movie is great and the fact that you have gary oldman emma thompson David Thewlis, and of course, the late, great Alan Rickman, who I call the Doctor of Dry for his just irreplaceable um, and irascible sense of humor just adds to the proceedings and what will go down I think as one of the great not just fantasy films but genre films and family films of all time it's scary but full of love and full of heart I can't wait for you guys to dive into this with me so enough introing let's get into this so set up your DVDs Blu-rays or digital files to zero minutes zero seconds and zero hours zero minutes and zero seconds i should have said um set it to zero get it ready to go it should line up pretty well you know definitely get the subtitles going and i like to have a little bit of ambient sound in the background uh it's a pretty intense noise in the harry potter movies with so much going on but just for the music it might be worth a a touch of sound i leave that up to you So cue it up and come back when you're ready to go. All right, here we go. I'm going to count from three, two, one. And when I say go, you should hit play and should line up pretty well. All right, here we go. Three, two, one, go. All right, people. Welcome to Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Directed by Alfonso Cuaron. Starring Daniel Radcliffe and Emma Watson, of course, and a whole host of characters and actors that you know already. So, we are going to jump right into this one. You might be wondering uh, why I'm doing this Harry Potter movie in particular, and probably only this one. Uh, And the reason is, it's the first one I saw. It was the one I liked the most, and that stuck with me the most. It also has one of my favorite directors in the world, who I was already a huge fan of um, beforehand, um, and definitely afterwards, Alfonso Cuaron, who directed Itumama Tambien a couple years before this, an incredible um, Spanish-language Mexican movie starring um, Diego Luna as a kid, if you can believe it, as well as... um, Gail uh, Garcia Bernal and career making performances for them. Uh, and then, of course, he would go on to direct Children of Men, one of the greatest films of all time and one of my favorite films, highly influential, both in terms of subject matter and film style. 
There it is. I love the, the titles right away. And it just starts with him using his wand to, to read in the dark. Such a simple thing, but you're not supposed to use magic, apparently, um, off, you know, the grounds. Um, but uh, I saw this with my sister. She loved the books. And this is going to be sort of the central narrative is I did not ever read the Harry Potter books. And I've only seen about four of the movies. I didn't see the first two and I didn't see the two part finale. I don't think. I think I saw the other four in the middle with my sister for the most part in the theater. It was just like something we did that we could sort of bond over. Um, and I had a vision in my head of what Harry Potter was based on what I'd heard from people and the obsessions and the theme parks and the costumes. And, you know, I mean, it, it was so much beyond a fad. It was an obsession. And the Harry Potter books have sold a half a billion copies that we're aware of. Uh, J.K. Rowling, the creator and writer, of course, is worth well over a billion dollars. She hasn't publicized her net worth, um, but she is a very, very rich lady. And with the prequel series, um, uh, what's it called, with Eddie Redmayne, uh, Magical Beast and Where to Find Them or whatever, she's going to make a lot more money. Um, so I go to this with my sister, and this is released one month before The Fellowship of the Ring was released, the first Lord of the Rings movie. Um, in, uh, I'm sorry, let me, let me rewind that. <laughs> the first Harry Potter movie was released one month before the first Lord of the Rings movie in 2001. Both of them made an absurd amount of money, and both of those series would continue to make absurd amount of money. The difference was Fellowship of the Ring is as good as the second and third films, and many, including my friend Adam and others, say Fellowship is either the best or their favorite. This movie, the third movie out of the eight was a clear jump and i sort of knew that ahead of time my sister had sort of described how the books took a big jump and with Quaron directing in the trailers and the previews it, right in four minutes in we're not even four minutes in and it's starting to get really tense and even a little scary and hilarious and gross and weird all about to happen in the next couple minutes here and i remember sitting in the theater being like okay I'm going to put my expectations of what Harry Potter is away. That's just a series of dumb books, which it's not, which people are obsessed with because they want to relive their childhood, which is true, but I actually support that more now than I did then. I thought I was too adult for this. So, uh, here we go. Th this is the, you don't want to see me when I'm angry. Um... And it's clear immediately that there's a different tone. So anyways, so both of those franchises were launched in 2001. Obviously, Lord of the Rings was meant to be uh, just three movies over three years. And this was going to be eight movies. Well, they thought seven and then eight uh, with 18 month cycles. So it was going to be like a uh, 11 year process, I think, 10, 10, 11 year process. And the movie gets way weirder and way darker than this. But this sort of hilarious hijinks, you know, with Harry not being able to control his powers uh, outside of school, which he's expected to do, uh, sets up everything about the character and the themes of, of the movie. And starting in the world of the Muggles with this horrible adoptive family, 
and we'll talk about the the very Tolkien-esque idea of uh, the Muggles as sort of, you know, the the regular humans who who are kind of weak and unspecial as compared with either the elves or Aragorn's people, the Dunedain, the men of the north, sort of the, you know, the men of Numenor with the pure blood. Um, you know, a, a lot of that weird sort of genetic... Uh, exceptionalism if you will is in the harry potter movies and to say that this takes a lot from tolkien that's obvious but what was not clear to me before seeing this is actually that it shares just as much with star wars and in fact you know harry potter is really a luke skywalker-esque figure more than anything else um which in turn comes from dune and, and other kind of messiah stories um now i had known that like this whole physical environment here that it was sort of a mix of modern england and pre-war england and then with with, you know the fantastical element all kind of mushed together you know moving picture frames like here um that's his parents dancing that looks just like hermione that's interesting never noticed that his mom looks like hermione they know that yeah she deserved what she got yeah, he's really not supposed to do this. This is really breaking the rules. They know that he's a magician. Uh, again, okay, so, Mia Culpa. Haven't read the books. Only seen three or four of the eight movies. This is the only one I've seen multiple times. I've thought about doing a commentary for this for a long time. And now with Emma Watson being a super mega star, as we all knew she would be, but seeing it happen with Beauty and the Beast, I was like, okay, gotta go back and do this movie. Because this, to me, is where... Well, Radcliffe and her both became stars, but especially Emma Watson. And the fact that she takes over the movie at the end is really interesting. And probably from the books that Hermione is, you know, as powerful as Harry in some ways. Harry's just part of a prophecy like Luke. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I couldn't help with all the Star Wars stuff going on in the last few months on the Bizzlecast and just, you know, in my life. The, the dynamic between the sort of platonic brother-sister dynamic between Harry and Hermione is such a Luke-Leo relationship. So I'll tease that and we'll get to that in a little bit when they meet up. Unfortunately, Rupert Grant as uh, Mr. Weasley uh, is not quite Han Solo, um, although they weren't going for that, obviously. But you did need sort of the, the third wheel um, Although I guess Luke Skywalker's the third wheel. <laughs> it's certainly not an empire, he's not. So, okay, here we are, eight minutes in. I know I, only what my preconceptions were about Harry Potter. It, it's already been weird, funny, scary. There's a wolf. There's a th- like a four-story bus that's about to speed through London, and, and no one's going to see them. And one of my concerns about Harry Potter... In the late 90s, when my sister and everyone of all ages began reading it, was that it it seemed to be playing very fast and loose with the rules of magic, which seems ridiculous to say, right? I mean, that's the whole point of magic, is that you can have fun with it because it doesn't exist, or so we think, and so it doesn't need rules. But I grew up with the Tolkien system of there is magic in the world, but not that many people can wield it, and there are some limitations for what it can do, what it does, what you can do with it. And even the most powerful, um, you know, wizards, magicians, sorcerers, whatever you want to call them, mages are specialized and have weaknesses. 
in this world, there's sort of a shared world of spells that, for the most part, anyone can cast if you're powerful enough and experienced enough. Um, but in, in the first half of this film, it's really a, a magical mystery tour through everything that the Harry Potter universe can offer in terms of magical hijinks. But there's no particular logic to it. And the stuff that's going on right here, while really creative and, and fun in the theater when you're seeing it for the first time, this ended up being kind of the focus of most of the later films that I saw, was how crazy can we go, you know, how cool can we make the CGI look, how, how you know, bizarre and spectacular can we make the um, effects look, and when I say spectacular, I don't mean just good, I mean like actual spectacle. This is not in the book, apparently, but I love it. You know, it, 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 it invariably, I, in movies based on books that I haven't read that I like, I end up liking stuff that aren't in the books, and people get annoyed by it. You know, like most of the stuff in in the Logan movie that that I saw fairly recently, depending on when you're listening to this. Oh, this is a great gag! Boom, <laughs> and then he hits his face later. Coming up, um, uh, is that? Uh, you know, a lot of stuff in Logan isn't in the Old Man Logan comic books, which is a very interesting series of comic books. Um, and I think one of the main points I want to make early here is that if you're a reader and you're watching this and it feels very true to the spirit of the books, this book in particular and the series in general, but there are some changes, then you should know that Alfonso Cuaron not made a demand that that would be the case, but basically talked with the producers, the previous directors, the producer, Chris Columbus, who has directed a ton of Hollywood movies, JK Rowling herself, who actually was pumped that he got on board. She loved Itumama Tambien. And another major theme we're going to talk about is how, um, this is a coming of age, you know, preteens becoming teenage story in the same way that Itumama Tambien was teenagers becoming young men story. And so Alfonso Cuaron is bizarrely uh, equipped to do this, even though this was his first major English language film with a $130 million budget. He would, of course, uh, about nine years after this, go on to direct Gravity with a similar budget and win a bunch of Academy Awards. Very cool. I love, yeah, this trippy stuff. You know, this is stuff I didn't actually like in Doctor Strange, even though, in comparison, Doctor Strange is a bigger budget movie. Um, although, actually, not by much in comparative dollars. <laughs> Smashes into the thing again. Um, but it just felt... If Doctor Strange was in its own universe, I probably would have liked it more. It just felt out of place in the Marvel Universe. And there's a reason that the Doctor Strange comic books have never sold well. And while Stephen Strange is a cool figure that pops up here or there in the comic books, he's not a mainstay or one of the most popular, you know, 15 to 20 main characters as far as I know. Um, And it just felt out of place here. You know, this is the Harry Potter universe. So I started getting into it. And with the early angry Harry, which I figured he was just a nerdy, meek, you know, uh, awkward kid, of which he really is none of those. He's very brave. He is confident. He does, you know, snap back at bullies. You know, he doesn't just take it, even though his friends stick up for him. He also sticks up for himself and for his friends. 
read the Ministry of Magic. Everything is bureaucratic in England, and, and the commentary, uh, uh, bureaucracy, the satire, uh, is certainly in J.K. Rowling's stuff, which I, I absolutely loved and could pick out. And the fact that you would get, you know, dry, you get some of the best. Um, Let's move it. Let me get, put it this way: some of the best and most famous and storied and excellent older English actors, from David Hewlett to um, uh, sorry, I'm getting sucked up by here. Um, from David Hewlett um, to uh, Gary Oldman um, to, of course, Alan Rickman, the late and great. May he rest in peace. He of the you know the Doctor of Dry, if you will. Being sort of bureaucratic magicians was something I never really thought about. You know, I mean, Lord of the Rings kind of hints at this a little bit with with the wizards having such different personalities and having certain protocols. But by the time we jump in and in the Lord of the Rings, you know, Saruman's turned to the dark side, and Radagast and the other two wizards who know what they're up to, and you know, everything's already gone to shit, and so people are. Um, you know, already improvising. This is a world where, yes, there's a really horrible guy named Voldemort out there, who, by the way, they almost never talk about in this movie. It's all his minions. And, uh, and I remember thinking that I might be disappointed if I don't see the big bad guy, but I know he's not coming because I know there's all these other books, but it ends up actually working in the favor of the movie that he's just hinted in, and we deal with his minions or who we think are his minions. There's tons of plot twists in this. So anyways, circling all the way back, I thought I would really not like the lack of magic rules or just logic. I don't care about actual rules, but like a sort of a logic like this, you know? I mean, this is really easy to 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 write in a book and not have to follow through with. My guess is J.K. Rowling has thousands and thousands of extra pages beyond what's on the published pages. You know, a Bible. I'm sure she has a Harry Potter Bible that's continually growing and changing the way Tolkien had, like, you know, 50... Uh, Bible's worth of encyclopedic uh, <laughs> knowledge that he created about the the world of Middle Earth, um, actually the realm of Middle Earth, the world of Arda, which is the planet. Most people don't know that. <laughs> um, and so when I saw the later movies, I, I remember having this experience of like, oh, this is like Prisoner of Azkaban. The first hour is going to be really fun, and they're going to be flying around on broomsticks, and there's going to be books trying to eat them, and they're casting all sorts of weird spells, and we're meeting all these weird characters. And then we're going to just get to Hermione and Harry, and maybe you know, and maybe a couple others, and, and it'll be a very you know character based story with with plot twists and you know uh, highly thematic elements and stylized uh, filmmaking. <laughs> this is great, yeah. I'll come back later, right? Yeah. Uh, but really, the, the other films, as far as I can recall, end up being just this. And the movies are like 2 hour 15 to 2.30, and it's just exhausting. And I I remember remembering, um, before I rewatched this movie, and uh, in order to maybe do this commentary, here they are, the two buddies, um, uh, that what I remembered from the movie was the second half of this film for the most part is what stuck in my brain and, and i'm going to get to why it was so memorable and so it was kind of a nice surprise to come back to this but this also made me realize after having seen a bunch of the other potter films that two and a half hours of just crazy magical hijinks is just exhausting the sounds as much as the visuals so right so you have the weasleys they're red head they're red they're redheads a bunch of brothers we see the weasley parents 
Um, Rupert Grant, not a great actor. Um, you know, in a long tradition of, and I, I have to assume this is how he's written in the book, in a long tradition of redheads being either uh, dumb, annoying, um, cowardly, w- weird, nerdy, and even possibly devious and evil. Uh, <laughs> for whatever reason, they make Rupert Grint's uh, Weasley uh, character uh, all of the above, other than clearly evil. Oh, and also lazy, just not particularly bright, kind of annoying. You're not really sure why they're friends with him. He, he didn't really bother me at the time, because I was expecting even worse, because redheads are, are generally portrayed uh, quite terribly. Um, in film and television. Um, yes, this is me projecting, but if you really look at most of the redhead characters who are cast specifically because they're redheads as opposed to, you know, normal, like, leading men, or, um, I'm talking about male characters here, not really female characters, um, you know, side characters with, with red hair in film, going back to my childhood and beyond, tend to be just weird or, or, or dumb or awkward, but they clearly have an affection for each other after doing two movies and then this one, uh, the actors that, that, that is, that are, that is, the actors that is, um, <laughs> Yeah, he already knows that someone's out to get him. Played by uh, Gary Oldman, who has a great turn in this movie, both literally and figuratively. Yeah. There's the there's the rat that's gonna come in important. I had totally forgot about the rat. Now they do had go- they had more Weasleys, uh, later I think in the later films, including Delmhawk Gleason and. Um, and his dad, Brendan Gleeson, who doesn't play part of the family, he plays like a professor and a wizard or whatever. Um, I don't think I got that far, because I think I would have recognized Tom Gleeson at that point. It doesn't really matter. So it's about the three of them, and the fact is, by the second half, forget just the third act, like by an hour in, it's really just the three of them, and they get isolated. Then, of course, you know he and Hermione... It, you know, find a way to to get away from their dumb friend um, to, to you know, do the third act, which is so great because it has a time travel element that we'll get to that I normally hate in principle in movies. It seems like such an obvious Harry Potter thing to do, but it's so brilliantly written and so clever. And because it's character stuff, you know, I, I will always go along with time travel stuff if it's character uh, not just character related, but you know, helps do things with the characters that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. That's why fantasy is great. That's why science fiction is great. So the first Harry Potter book comes out in uh, 1997. Now, recently on my weekly TV podcast with uh, Maddie G. Matt Goisman, um, I talked about uh, my one of my favorite fantasy authors, Raymond Feist. Sort of, you know, he's written, he wrote 30 books from like 82 up until a couple of years ago in his Rift War cycle. Um, and is a very, you know, I mean, it's a little young adulty. It, it's not particularly, uh, you know, poetic <laughs> or lyrical. He just spins great yarns and, and comes up with great plot and memorable characters, even if they're not always um, or even often, you know, fully three dimensional. You kind of love it for that input 
just for the world building. And there is a real consistency, both in magic and just the political system and, and society and the way everything operates in Midkemia, uh, which is his version of Middle Earth. So in 1997, he published the third out of four books in his Serpent War saga, which was really the last, I think, like... I'm not going to say great, but very, very good of his sagas. It was the 11th book. There'd be 12 uh, with the fourth book in that saga, um, Shards of a Broken Crown. But the one published, and oh, this is so creepy. I remember 20 minutes in, I'm going, are you shitting me? A PG-13 Harry Potter movie with basically a black rider. I mean, this is straight from the Nazgul. I have to think they were they drew some of this imagery from the Nazgul stuff, or just the way they, they light it. You know, how there's like a black cow that you can't see into. Uh, and the face removal thing. So these guys, they're called Dementors, I think. Dementors. Um, and they are... I don't know if they're truly evil. I, they feed off of wizards and they guard the prison. It's not really clear to me how that works. Um, oh, there he is. Oh, man. God damn, do I love David Thewlis. Sorry if I mispronounced his name earlier. What a great character actor. I mean, him and, speaking of Brendan Gleeson, him and, and then Brendan Gleeson and Martin Sokis as the horrible Christian Knights Templar in Kingdom of Heaven absolutely make that movie just, for me, magnificent and maybe my favorite Ridley Scott movie. Um, David Thewlis plays um, one of the... Um, like basically he's from a more beneficent order of Christianity um, and is helping Orlando Bloom, who's the main character along the way. And he ultimately sacrifices himself for Christianity in a way that he knows is just throwing his life away and they're going to get slaughtered by the Muslims. And it's sort of a weird character turn, but they make his character. It's one of those characters that you're, you know, they were supposed to have died in a, uh, in a um, shipwreck coming from Europe with the Crusaders. It's almost one of those characters that you're not sure if Orlando Bloom is imagining or not because he only interacts with Orlando Bloom and then seems to disappear into his own thing. Very, you know, he he has a, even though he has a a quirky, wry, uh, you know, English delivery, um, with just a strange tone to his voice, where you're, you know, you're not necessarily sure if he's good or evil. Though you're, you know, you know, in Kingdom of Heaven, he's he's pretty good early on because he's buddies with Liam Neeson, who's Orlando Bloom's father, who dies, and then he sort of promises to look over um, Orlando Bloom's character, um, who is basically trying to save the Christians from themselves. Anyways, excellent character actor. He's going to be in Wonder Woman as a major character in a couple months, which I'm very excited about. Um, because, you know, it's basically about how Wonder Woman saves Chris Pine during, during uh, World War One. He's an American soldier, and they end up in England. Uh, and some hilarious hijinks should ensue. So Thulis was added for this movie, I, which you know, even if you've never seen it, look at the little frogs. I mean, you just notice things every time. You could see why kids, people of all ages love this and why it's so rewatchable. So they had to recast Dumbledore. Uh, even I know who Dumbledore was because I knew that he was basically, you know, Gandalf. Uh, I mean, he looks like Gandalf. He talks like Gandalf. He asks, you know, he acts like 
uh, Gandalf from early in the Lord of the Rings, where he's you know smoking too much pipe weed and not really sure what's going on, and you know three steps behind the game, and you know I think I, you know Dumbledore definitely takes a, a journey in this series, both movie and book. Here's the bullies. <laughs> um, and he ends up being much more complicated. But at this point in in the in this the Harry Potter series, I, I could tell um, even watching it the first time. But you know, having researched and read all the plots and character stuff since that, you know, he, he was just an out and out good, if kind of spaced out uh, <laughs> head of the uh, the Wizard Academy. Um, Hogwarts. And this guy looks like it's like Hodor mixed with the, the dude from uh, the Princess Bride. They do some really weird greed screed stuff with him to make him look like a super giant. It's very apparent. And to be honest with you, the effects are very up and down in terms of how well they've held up. But I could really care less because the character stuff is so excellent in this movie. And uh, so, you know, Gandalf Jr. here or whatever, it is interesting that you had the two wizards kind of going at the same time. Um, Michael Gambon is his name. Gambon, Gambon, uh, who replaced Richard Harris. And since I didn't see the first two movies, I, I thought this guy was great, you know, putting enough of a spin on it to not just be straight up Ian McKellen, even though they look and sound very similar. And, and fulfill a very similar role of, you know, being in charge of the operation, but also knowing that they can't do everything themselves, both logistically, but also because they need to be grooming people, you know, in, in, in Gandalf's case, it's Aragorn that he's grooming to take over because Gandalf can't do it forever. And the men, you know, the world of men need to rule themselves once the threat's destroyed. Here, you know, Dumbledore's training, you know, well, all of them, but especially Harry Potter, obviously, um, to be the, you know, the elders of the wizard uh, of Hogwarts and the the land of the wizards going forward. Now, I always wondered if there are ministries of magic in other countries or whether it's just England. Um, Because it's just England. Whoa. The, (laughs) The fat lady can't sing. She just wants to shatter the class. Um, you know, if it's if it's just England, then, you know, the genetic side of things gets really weird. And the fact that, par- you know, Potter's parents were, were, were wizards or witches or whatever you want to call them, not really clear why they have to call the f- women witches and the and the boys wizards. Um, there's certainly been a lot of criticism about lack of diversity, uh, both ethnically, but also in terms of, um, like, I don't know if there are any openly gay characters uh, in the books or the movies. This is the kids just doing kid stuff. Okay, so if there's a if there's a clear Tolkien influence. This is a nice little performance from from Rupert Grint here, going like a tiger. Yeah, I think we have a winner. That's really good. And Harry is always the weird one. Um, so you've got the Luke Skywalker thing, you've got the Tolkien thing, but you definitely have an X Men X Mansion thing. And you know, I know the first book was written in '97. And just to wrap up that previous thought. The Rage of a Demon King by Feist was very sort of adulty, uh, 
fantasy for the time. It certainly is nowhere near as dark and disturbing as as Game of Thrones and a lot of more recent entries into dark fantasy. But it was certainly more in the Tolkien mold of you know death and destruction and medieval battle. I want to point out, speaking of medieval, that this soundtrack is indeed, or the score is indeed John Williams. It's the he's three for three in the movies, and then he stopped after this one. And it is an awesome soundtrack. It, it just almost tells the story better than the, the actual story um, at times because there's a lot of Harry Potter passing out as transitions. Here's Emma Thompson being very Emma Thompson-y. Kind of a hippie, uh, you know, very hippie. I, I wonder if they embellished that for the book, you know, with her big curly hair and the crazy glasses and the trippy, uh, the psychedelic colors. and Actually, with those big glasses where you can barely see her eyes, it reminds me of uh, Mas Kidada. She's like a, she's like a big English human Mas Kidada. Um, and uh, when I read Rage of a Demon King in '97, I was a junior. And then when the saga, that particular saga finished in 98, it wasn't a great finish. And that was when I just gave up on fantasy. I mean, Rage of a Demon King was like the last burst of my interest in the fantasy genre because it was really dark. It was a giant war story, basically. It was very much uh, taken from World War II, um, uh, both thematically, but also the the way the military strategy unfolded on both sides of the war and you know, they had like the Maginot line kind of thing, and, uh, and which Feist even talked about in relation to that book. Um, and they should have just wrapped it up there. Um, and for really from that point until fairly recently, like the last few years, uh, somewhat spurned on by Game of Thrones, even though I kind of lost interest in Game of Thrones, the TV series after the first couple seasons, it did get me kind of back into wanting to read modern fantasy again, um, which I've been doing with some success. Um, but, you know, my conclusion back then is still my conclusion now, which is Tolkien did it first in terms of modern fantasy, and he did it the best. And there's a lot of weaknesses with, with Tolkien in terms of a reading experience. I mean, it's perfect as far as I'm concerned. I would not change anything, but you have to, you know, be not only okay with, but love that he'll spend dozens or hundreds of pages talking about, you know, roaming around the countryside and describing nature. And most writers just don't do that. They don't want to do it. They don't know how to do it. They certainly are not capable or trained or practiced in it. Uh, it's not what people want to read. But when you get down to the mythology of Tolkien, it, it's the most logical because he has, you know, written basically 6,000 years of history from A to Z and all the important people involved and even a lot of the not important people involved in the societies and the cultures and the gods and, you know. I mean, I was reading an article the other day on Dungeons and Dragons, which I've gotten into with some friends recently after never really being interested. And uh, but then when I was interested, I couldn't find anyone to do it, so I've been doing it over Skype with some some older friends of mine. And I was researching it because it is very uh, Lord of the Rings esque, obviously with the elves and the doors and the orcs. But there's also a lot of uh, m- more broad fantasy and horror things, and it, indeed they pulled from Lovecraft and f- even from. Um, uh, Roger Zelazny and, and older fantasy writers, uh, also pulpy stuff that came out in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, like Conan the Barbarian, uh, and, and, and you know, and those sorts of things. You know, because the dragons is so big and has to hand has to handle so many hundreds and thousands of hours, so many different campaigns. 
um, that, that they need to pull in a lot of things. Here's more, uh, you know, standing up against the bullies. And, you know, no no sort of teen uh, high school or middle school, I guess, here uh, movie would, would be complete without this sort of stuff, right? Just, just when he starts to think that Harry Potter has uh, has upper hands. Uh, oh, God, M. Watson's so good. Uh, just like Harry's having the upper hand in that, you know, fake fight. He finds a way to mock him further. Um, and uh, anyways, to conclude my long discussion of, of fantasy, so we can get into the story here, um, and the CGI creature, which in daylight looks really awkward now, but later when they're engaged with him physically in the dark in the woods, it actually works much better. And so it, it works for me better on repeat viewings. But again, I've gotten to the point in my life, and this will be true about fantasy too, where I don't need the most realistic and dark stuff. You know, I mean, in this year, 2004, I'd come off the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which was, you know, as as magical as, as Middle Earth can feel at times. A lot of it's really in Fellowship of the Ring when they're when they're in, uh, Elv- I was gonna say Elvendar, when they're when they're in Lothlorien in the forest, and when they're in Rivendell with, with Elrond, and and the scenes with the elves. Um, but once they get into the war, it's pretty brutal. You know, I mean, it's just really violent confrontations with orcs and and Frodo and Sam running all over the place trying to hide in these really oppressive environments. Um, And I think Lord of the Rings is sort of more mystical in some ways than magical. I mean, even Gandalf, he's more of a mystic than a a magician in sort of the the Harry Potter fairy tale sense, and that's the other major influence, or one other major influence is um, he bows to the creature. This is really important. It's so sad when the creature dies, but they get a chance to change it later. Um, is, Is, you know the fairy tale aspect of this, which I knew was a major part of it, you know, and wears it on its sleeve. Um, in the late nineties, when I was already giving up on fantasy, even adult fantasy that wasn't called Tolkien, you know, and fairy tales and Disney and, you know, kind of broad, uh, portrayals of, of wizardry like this just didn't appeal to me. Now, like in video games, I'm so sick of just like dark, violent shooters that I find myself going back to like Zelda and you know more more happy uh, kind of Nintendo uh, properties and, and fantasy RPGs, and uh, I'm I'm starting to actually appreciate more broad portrayals um, as long as it's well well done and well realized. Um, so. I've done a lot of... Well, let me say this. I've done all the major research I need to do. <laughs> Green screen, CGI Harry Potter. Who cares? So much fun. They had to form this bond, too. This was really key. Now, if you look at Warcraft last year, I'm recording this in uh, early April 2017. You look at Warcraft last year, which I think is super underrated. I'll probably watch after this movie as an unwind. Um, and like midway through one of my rewatches, um, the uh, Griffin scene with, uh, <laughs> with I was going to say with Ragnar, with Travis Fimmel, who plays um, Lord Lothar, Lothar Ragnar, we can call him. Um, and rides a griffin just like in the Warcraft uh, games. Uh, I mean, it just looks completely seamless. This this looks like twenty, uh, like two thousand four. 
um, but the texture on the bird is great. And whenever they're touching it, it really feels tactile. That's a great shot of the talon in the water there. Um, I always forget how long and majestic this shot is and setting up how sad it is uh, in a little bit when they kill him. Not Harry Potter. The, uh, the Griffin guy. What's the Griffin guy called? So, anyways, this movie was the transition. And this is going to be sort of the main focus for the rest of this commentary. This movie was the transition between them being kids, like little kids, and then transitioning into adults, just like in the books. But they needed a director who could pull that transition off. And they just felt Quadon was the guy. And he had never read the material. He had never read the material. I mean, he almost didn't take it because it, it felt like a little too, you know, kiddie for him or whatever. Or that's, he felt like I felt, you know, we were just ignorant of the depth uh, of, the, of the themes and character stuff that's going on. Um, and, uh, you know, he said that, you know, when, when, by the time the filming concluded, Quaron said that it had, quote, been the two sweetest years of my life. And even expressed interest in directing a sequel, which didn't happen, um, which was probably best for everyone. He, he ended up making Children of Men, which is the opposite of this movie, but it was extremely important. So, right, so the, the Griffin um, attacks the evil bully. He starts crying like a little bitch. And, I, and what's great is later we see Emma Watson not punch him not just once, but twice, right? The face. It's fantastic for two different angles. Um, and so they're going to execute this thing for attacking that, that horrible boy. And other than needing him at the end for a rescue operation, you know, I mean, setting up this relationship and making you feel real sad. And by the way, there's a lot of animal violence and animal-related violence, animals creating violence to others and violence on animals in this movie. Um, and I, it should be said that this is the lowest grossing of any of the movies, including all the ones that came before it and afterwards. And it's because it's one of the darkest. They spend a lot of time on character stuff. J.K. Rowling gave Quadone permission to make changes or leave stuff out or even add stuff in as long as it was in the spirit of the book. And she was very happy with the results. She said that there are numerous scenes in this movie that give her chills and spots that she never thought. And that Quadone you know, was able to uh, kind of almost subconsciously foreshadow in a non-invasive and non-spoilery way things, images, and themes, and, and plot twists that were going to come later in the series. I mean, the, the fulcrum of the series came around him. If this movie had been, you know, a decent another Harry Potter movie, they probably would have kept making the movies, because the books were selling tens and then hundreds of millions of copies. But even though this was the darkest, and probably people didn't rewatch it as much or maybe 2004 was just a weird film year but yeah i mean jk rowling has said that the harry potter series is specifically about death um although it's not like they advertise it in that way this movie really deals with it head on and uh what i was gonna say earlier was that there's a very much like an x-men x-mansion vibe going on like you're different society treats you different but you're special and you're powerful and so we're all gonna get together and we're gonna show each other our powers but we can't do it too much or you can get in trouble i mean definitely feels like uh, like the x-mansion with the with the kitty x-men running around 
So Emma Watson as Hermione, amazing. I remember being blown away by both Radcliffe and her, but especially her, and thinking that, you know, I'm, this is the thing. Uh, this is why I hope I can keep my, my podcast around for a long time so that I can make predictions and have them come true and, and point to the tape because just like when I first saw Chloe uh, Moritz, um, perform as a kid in a couple movies when i saw emma watson in this movie i'm like okay this girl's gonna be a star she has ridiculous charisma she's such a badass you guys know i love empowered smart female badass characters who take command of the situation and she is you know she's the layer to his luke i mean i remember at the time being like they're not doing a very good job of setting up the romance they're even hinting a romance with her and and Weasley, you know, and so, but, but then, you know, I learned later, of course, that it was never the intention for them to be romantic together and that Harry would have various love interests and they were going to just be brother or sister from beginning to end, basically, uh, which is a beautiful thing. You know, I, I'm such a f- fan of being able to maintain platonic relationships. You know, even if you're an attractive hetero guy and she's an attractive hetero girl, just because you're not with other people, it doesn't mean you should be with each other, right? I think we've all had times when we thought that was a good idea with friends and it's it's not worked out well. I'm very happy to say that I have a lot of female friends, married and unmarried, um, you know, well into my 30s and I hope for the rest of my life. And I think it's a beautiful thing that they're just platonic best friends through the whole thing. And there are even parts where they kind of hold each other and hug in this movie, but it's, it's, it's very non-sexualized. And that's a tribute to Cordon's direction. It's a tribute to those two actors just being so, so ahead of the curve. You know, normally they, they get, you know, 14-year-olds to play um, 12-year-olds. Here's Alan Rickman as Snape, who I immediately loved, only later found out both how important and how beloved his character is, uh, both on screen and in the book. And uh, in research for this, I specifically read through the entire sort of biographies of um, Alan Rickman's character Snape um, and uh, David uh, Thule's character... Um, sorry about the names. It's hard for me to keep track of having not read all the books or seen the movies in a while. Um, and uh, David Thewlis, who plays Remus Lupin, um, not a coincidence being a werewolf. His name is Lupin. Lupus means wolf. I love that the giant spider. You're going, oh my god, this is just straight from Tolkien. Oh wow, they made they made a, a black widow spider. I totally missed that. Everyone's having a good time. Laughter. Oh, finally, a student of color. Gets to do a little acting. Snake. I'm totally fine with CGI snakes. If they're real, if this was at all real looking, I, I'd be losing my mind. Well, that tail's kind of creepy. Um, but anyway, so I, I looked up the entire run of um, Lupin and Snape um, through the books, especially Snape. You know, I wanted to know if he ended up being a bad guy after all, whether they just kept teasing it and it turns out that he is a very dark character oh my god that i know i love this because i i knew even having not seen it before that something horrible was gonna happen here but to have it come out of to have the funny image before the dark image be the creepy clown in the box thing 
is just perfect in the way i mean quite really knows how to shoot horror stuff in fact they thought they were maybe going to try and get guillermo del toro but he like completely turned his nose up at it in the way that quite almost did but quite could see through it and i think guillermo del toro's problem and maybe it's not a problem but you know he can't really complain about lack of mainstream success because all of his movies you know even movies like pan's labyrinth which are somewhat accessible to fans of you know who aren't uh, to people who aren't just horror fans basically um or even pacific rim you know is that he just always goes a little too far trying to make it kind of like genre if that makes sense you know like pan's labyrinth was like a little too nihilistic and dark even for the story that it was trying to tell and it just made the whole fantasy side of that movie feel completely worthless like the kid was just hallucinating or something and, and maybe that was the point but you know that that was a movie that i remember being like this is brilliant and leaves me hollow children of men on the other hand while a horrific horrific dystopian tale both the scenario and what actually goes on in, in those couple days in the, in the movie with clive owen and the and the pregnant girl and their allies and enemies i mean absolutely horrifying I, i'll watch that movie once a year um because the artistry of it is great and because it does leave you with a little bit of hope at the end you know just not just how it ends um but that there are some good people in the world you know and it doesn't even have to be a majority of us um It's also a genre thing. I mean, Quaron's not a horror directive uh, director, uh, which makes what he pulled off here even more impressive. Because there's really, I mean, that's the thing. Rewatching this movie, this is one of the scarier movies that I saw in the theater ever. I would say I do not like scary movies. You know, um, I mean, I saw two horrible Alien, Alien Resurrection, and Prometheus in the theater, both of which were terrible. If I had seen the original Alien or Aliens in the theater, I would have shat myself and had to leave um and uh you know i'm not normally into like werewolf stuff and i didn't think that was a part of harry potter at all i I couldn't believe that they they were were trying to pull that off uh speaking of a werewolf david doulis is indeed a werewolf he's taking a potion to hold it at bay and he's forming this great relationship with uh as sort of a a father figure or at least a friend and mentor to harry and uh you know there's a great apparent heel turn at the end where you think he's a bad guy but you realize he's just a werewolf that's having trouble controlling his powers and he i I think goes on to sort of aid harry from the wilderness going forward now this is scotland now apparently the first two movies were mostly just sets in london and they were just in school all the time and you know there wasn't much environmental stuff but in this which is all about the beasts and the woods and the you know the environment and interaction with the mythical animals and the werewolves and and so forth you had to uh you had to do it and i think you know people people's complaints about the first two movies and there was a big drop between the first and the second movie in terms of people's interest because it just you know the kids were still really young their chemistry hadn't come together they didn't have amazing direction they were trying to be too loyal to the book like you know word word for word 
um, on screen kind of thing, which never works. Um, I think J.K. Rowling probably wanted to actually give a director, a good director, more leeway in this third movie. Um, and so Quadron was the perfect fit for that. But, you know, when you're working just all on sets, it's not as bad as green screens because it is real and you're there. But it does have a similar effect in terms of not having a connection with the wider environment and being able to respond and react to it. And while a lot of people point to this movie and say, you know, one of the great things about it as a transitional movie into the rest of the series was they make it huge uh, Hogwarts school, huge and lived in. There's all these rooms we didn't know about, but also the wider grounds. You know, that it would be in sort of northern England or even southern, you know, Scotland. Um, I don't know if they ever say exactly where it is. It's clearly Scotland if you've ever been to Scotland or even watched Braveheart before. Um, but, uh, you know, the memorable parts in the second half of the movie are Weasley and Hermione and Harry, you know, running all over the place doing adventure stuff out in nature. And I think that it was really important to the actors, in particular, for this movie where they're turning into young adults, basically, you know, teenagers, not just kids anymore, to have it have a more real, realistic feel to it. Not in the sense of dialing back on the magic. If anything, the magic is even more bizarre here than what's come before, from what I understand. But, you know having them wear, like, for example, the brilliant decision, I think, I don't know if this how it was in the book, is through the second half of the movie, you know, they're wearing, like, hoodies and Adidas jackets, and, like, they're wearing, like, kid stuff, which just makes it so much more accessible and plays to the strength of the Harry Potter universe, which is that it's modern. I mean, even if it's, you know, even if it is modern uh, in the sense of, like, pre-war or post-war England... This is great. They know Harry's awake, and they're talking loudly about him right as they stand over him. He's got to know it, too. Um, uh, and, of course, you know, it, it's a mix of, of you know, 1940s, 1950s uh, with the present day, but grounding them with, with modern fashion and the running around the woods, it, it really starts to feel like a teen horror movie, like a good teen horror movie late which is something that, of course, Lord of the Rings never would be. I mean, you couldn't ever really relate to Lord of the Rings. And it's not just because the characters are, you know, two-dimensional, which they are for the most part, although on screen with great performances, they they, they sniff three-dimensionality. Oh, this tree's awesome. This is like an ant that's not fully uh, alive, and it's just mean. <laughs> Here's Snape. I love Alan Rickman. Look at this. He's such a badass. He's so mean. Um, I remember not being super surprised that he ended up being a good guy in this movie. Uh, just the way they set it up. You know, it was clear they were saying uh, that they were trying to get a lull us into thinking that he was, you know, a bad guy, but he actually had a good heart deep down. But that is sort of a, a, a much more complicated and, uh, um, nuanced version of what I just said is true about his character throughout the entire run of the series that he does get obsessed with the dark arts. He has a thing for Harry's mom. 
um, is just friends with the Potters, but he gets too close to Voldemort, and ultimately he is a good guy, but he has to, you know, he's constantly trying to keep the darkness at bay. Um, I think he ends up basically sacrificing himself at the end. All, all, all the all, all the guys die. All the all the middle aged guys are are dead by the end of the the final movie, I believe. Um, which is, I guess, kind of a trope. Although Gandalf doesn't die. Um, I don't know what happens to the other wizards. Like not all the senior characters die. Like Elrond doesn't die. Galadriel and Celeborn don't die. They just, but they do go off into the West, which is a form of dying. Right, so they're so you have Miss Granger speaking out of turn, and they keep saying they, they they have these great reveals where I'm sure this is in the book. He's got a point, you know. You know, I'm sure it's in the book that she's sneaking around with a time travel device and not telling anyone. But they keep making these jokes that Quaron just sets up beautifully, where they're like. Where, where did you come from? And you'd realize that she wasn't there at all in frame and you didn't even think about it because you just assumed she was there, but she's not if you're really looking and then suddenly she's there and she's answering questions. But she's really investigating what's going on. And this is something that I had to sort of read up on that's, that's hinted and then she kind of mentions it later when she reveals the time travel device that this is the moment now when she realized something is going on. Um, with Lupin, with David Dolan's character, that and the fact that they're talking about werewolves, and you know that Snape is suddenly changing the subject to, to werewolves, having never talked about it before, and he's you know substituting in an unplanned way, and all that sort of stuff. And it's it's Emma Watson, man. It's it's fucking Hermione that's putting all the shit together. And this is you know this is up oh, here's the uh, Quidditch. I didn't even heard of Quidditch. The Quidditch matches are never at all as cool as I think they're going to be because you're like, okay, it's got to be more than just a broomstick and a ball, but that's really, that's all it is. Um, this does something that the early X-Men movies and the Matrix sequels do understand, which is if you're trying to pull off flying and you know you still have some limitations on the CGI do it in rain and darkness and lightning and thunder and all sorts of stuff you know i mean it works for storm's character so great in the initial x-men movies because it's whenever she's like levitating there's like lightning and thunder and, and wind going um so it looks a lot more real he sees the werewolf in the clouds very cool there was a shot up on his face two seconds ago that with those goggles is very very reminiscent of quicksilver days of future past right up on the face um you know, Emma Watson and uh, Daniel Radcliffe are both characters that you can shoot, you know, right up or almost straight up on the face, um, which is important with with kid characters that you're getting to know over the movies. You you, you need to you need to be able to identify that with them more, which is, I guess what I was trying to say before with Lord of the Rings is you can't ultimately identify with any of those characters because it's just such an alien universe or at least an alien time in our universe, if you think that, you know, that's a f- long time ago um, on our planet or something like that. Oh, here it is. There's the Quicksilver shot. That was great. Well, they they, they beat it by 10 years. Like, I'll give it to Quadron uh, and the, the film team. Um, oh, man. Yeah. So this is it's a mix of Black Riders and then the cut scene the horribly stupid scene that they cut uh, i mean it was stupid that they cut it from the end of return of the king 
where the uh, the messenger from Sauron, who's just a mouth with with a mask, you know, a horrible disfigured mouth, and he has Frodo's armor and is lying that Frodo's dead, and Aragorn decapitates him. I can't believe they cut it out of the movie. It's such a cooler setup for the final, final, final battle. So this is, I think, the second time he's passed out. This is such a trope in, in movies, you know, to transition from dramatic scenes back to normal life with your lead characters, especially ones with special powers. Having them pass out, that's fine. But look at look at the way Hermione looks at him. I mean, it's it's the concern, almost a motherly concern, you know. And it, this is the Princess Leia thing: is that Luke. Yes, is is theoretically the main character of the original trilogy. He's the hero. He's the he's the one with the good heart and the lightsaber and the force powers. The one you want to be when you're a little boy. But Princess Leia is really doing everything. She's running the rebellion. She's giving orders. She's a spiritual leader. She's a military leader. She's way smarter than Han and Luke combined by a factor of like ten. So she's always the one having to come up with stuff. I mean, Han will come up with clever schemes when he has to like hotwire something, you know, or planting bombs. But in terms of like the larger strategy and tactics, you know, or even just dealing with people, Leia is always the smarter one. That certainly a, a, um, applies here. Uh, with Hermione, and uh, again, I, I think that's one of the reasons. I mean, that that girls love the book so much is Hermione is such a. I mean, it's more than just an empowered character. It's like it's called Harry Potter, and he's on the cover, and it's the iconic image of him with the glasses, and of course Radcliffe. Uh, basically, young little Radcliffe, and even here, looks just like Harry Potter from the book covers. But boy, does he turn into a handsome man! I mean. Emma Watson has been in more big movies, and, and she's gorgeous as uh, as well. They they both turned into incredibly, incredibly good looking uh, young people, and uh, I mean, you could tell as kids that you know that, that, that they had a good look to them. But you just have to get lucky with some of the stuff. I mean, Radcliffe is jacked. You see him now without the glasses and like a normal haircut, and you know, like shirtless and all jacked. I mean, he's a he is a stud. Um, which makes the him and Hermione not getting together, or him and Emma Watson not getting together, the movie thing, you know, even even a greater achievement. Because you'd think it would be such a natural attraction. But yeah, she's like mothering him even here. You know, she's constantly saving him from himself. He's reckless. I mean, he's just like Luke, you know. Luke is is, is strong with the Force, and, and he, he doesn't want to go to the dark side. He hates the dark side, and you know, but that's still hate. It's the same way that Vader is trying to pull out the hate in Luke, you know, at the end of Empire and then the end of Jedi. Um, it's that, you know, <laughs> hating the dark side is what, you know, it would seem to be natural if you're fighting for the good, but but the, the actual hatred will just draw you to it or at least make you weak against it. And Harry's actually fighting that here. I mean, you know, on, on, on subsequent rewatches, it's really like a Luke, a Luke Skywalker type story. Um, and I wonder if Rowling was drawing from, from that. Now, I always say that, um, oh, here's the, uh, right. So the older, okay. So part of what makes, um, Ron Weasley, Ron, is that his name? Did I just make that up? Yeah. Ron Weasley. Uh, part of what makes Ron Weasley more tolerable is, 
yes, he's a lovable loser, I suppose. Um, but his family is is cool and and smart, and is always helping Harry, and that that informs why Harry puts up with with Ron, who's not particularly talented or or bright. Um. It's all the red-headed Weasleys. Now they add uh, Don Hall Gleason, uh, and I think Gleason's brother, as two more Weasleys later uh, down the road. As the productions got bigger and they wanted more star power and more acting power. Now these guys are doing a really good job. They're actually twins, clearly, if it's actually two people. Um, and, you know, that does give the world a, a lived-in feel. And again, as a first-time Harry Potter experience for me. I'm like, oh, this all makes sense. These people all know each other. You can tell that they have chemistry from working together in the past, and both on, you know, on and off screen. And Quaron just must have made them feel real comfortable. And but by having all these real sets and, and real outdoor environments, it just allows them to really, um, what's the word? Just kind of relax and just be themselves. Like I feel like, yes, Daniel Radcliffe's playing. Harry Potter, but I feel like he's really being himself, and, and actually the moments where he gets really angry or upset or enraged are quite affecting in this movie. I wonder if his, if he had ever done anything like that in acting before. Now these kids must have been, you know, doing some acting as little kids on stage in England. It feels like everyone in England acts as kids, and they, you know, they audition thousands of kids for this stuff. I don't know what the criteria was, um, you know, how they judge them. Yeah, they're trying to build the romance between these two. I think those two do end up together as per the book. I don't know if they end up actually selling the romance uh, convincingly on screen, but at this point, I, I don't really care. It, it just makes sense that she's interested in someone else so that, you know, brother and sister don't have to make out. I wonder if she, you know, I wonder if uh, J.K. Rowling was like writing the original books and she was thinking Hermione and Harry were going to get together. And then she started thinking about empire strikes back where they make out. And then Lucas decided that it was better if they're brother and sister. We just have to forget about that, which by the way, people always point to the empire strikes back scene, uh, where she kisses Luke fairly passionately to sort of get back at Han Solo or just make Han mad. And then she also gives him a, a kiss on the lips when Luke's injured later in the Falcon when they rescue him at the end after the Vader battle. But there was initially another makeout scene, uh, I think on Hoth, uh, where, <laughs> you know, it would have been even harder to, you know, retcon that it wasn't robots and that, you know, he knew the whole time. Look at her. She's just smiling. They're having a great time. They're having such a blast. Look how comfortable they are. I mean, this is the thing. English actors start young, and, and being famous as an actor in England is just not the same as being famous as an actor in America. I mean, honestly. I mean, do, do what John Krasinski does. Or did, you know. If you want to be... I thought that was Helen Bonacarta there for a second. I think it's Julie Christie, um, who looks spectacular. Um... You know, I think John, I mean, part of why John Krasinski married Emily Blunt is because she's very pretty and she's also super cool, but it must be cool to, live, to be able to live in England too. Not that he's such a mega celebrity, but you know what I mean? I mean, celebrities, they, you know, they live in New York and LA and they opine about being recognized. Um, that's why a lot of them have houses in South Africa and Italy and so forth. 
Um, but these English kids, like, and and by the way, um, I have read about this uh, even well before I decided to do this commentary and was reading up on the production, which was, oh, here's the little heads again. Uh, they're very creepy. They sort of look like the pod people <laughs> from Dark Crystal mixed with orcs. Um, th- th- they cast, they said very specifically that they cast for the families as much as they cast for the kids. They didn't want horrible stage parents. And that, you know, the main kids, the main three at least, they they all had a pact like together and with their parents and with the filmmakers that if they wanted out at any time, they could get, they could, they weren't going to force these kids to stay in the movies, but by continuing to get new directors and to get great critical and fan reception and so much great material to work from this Colo spying scene here, this is just, um, plastic, you know, I mean, this is this is a great practical f- magic effect where they just use a sheet of uh, semi-cloudy plastic and then do a, a few touch-ups later on. But I'm pretty sure that's just a big thing of plastic. Um, and uh, I don't know about Rupert Grant. Um, you don't see him in too many interviews, um, although he's had a decent post-career. There's a lot of Harry Potter side characters that really haven't done anything, actors and actresses, but um, in terms of after the movies... Um, unlike Radcliffe and especially Watson, who are big stars now. I mean, Emma Watson's about to have a billion-dollar film, a- another one, but with Beauty and the Beast. Different franchise. This is great. He cries with his invisibility invis- cloak coming up as he learns more about his family, and they're, they're watching him. Um, and that's what makes you ultimately like Weasley, is, you know, he, he's... Uh, when he's not just being an idiot or, or, or selfish or lazy, you know, he, he's, he's a good friend. He's got a good heart deep down, I suppose. Um, but, uh, the, you know, these young actors really wanted to, that's that a great touch there. He tries to stop her and most movies she'd just stop, but she brushes him off and she keeps walking and she knows where he is. You can see the footsteps. I mean, this is so tender. You just you don't see this from adult actors, let alone kid actors. I just remember. I mean, I'm going to keep saying it. These two actors, I just remember being so impressed. I couldn't believe it because you know this came out in 2004, so it had been seven years. I think five or six of the books had come in out had come out at this point. There it is. He was their friend. Yep. That was awesome from Daniel Radcliffe. That's where I was really sold on him. I'm like, wow, this kid can act. So the, so the books had been out seven years. This is the third movie. 2004, I'd already reread Lord of the Rings for like the fifth and sixth time. I saw the movies a bazillion times. Um, and while I loved Return of the King, the three movies in three years was exhausting when you had the two Matrix movies in 2003. And so this was a nice change of pace in 2004. Um, I'd also just come back from Botswana, I think. Was that the year before? It was senior year. Um, oh no, this is a summer release. That's why we were able to see it together. Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's the one, Jerry. And uh, those, you know, I can't say enough. Radcliffe and Watson, I just blew me away. And so later when I researched it, that this this felt like a breakout performance without me realizing that it was a breakout performance. I, I th- again, I think my sister had informed me that the first two movies were more like straight up kids movies. They were PG and so forth, and that this was 
was a step into uh, adult territory a little bit. But here we are, halfway through, and we're still exploring this great mentor-mentee relationship. It's got a little father-son um, uh, with David Thulis as Lupin, with Harry. And it, it's great, too, because y- you briefly think Lupin turns on him at, at the end, or at least turns on the good guys, um, which makes all of this just seem such like such gratuitous. Uh, you know, leading us the wrong way type stuff. That's cool. I love the sort of steampunk aspect of Harry Potter. If anything, I wish, yeah, like with the trains and the buses. And Oh, there it is. I love it. He's releasing a straight-up Dementor. Expecto Patronum. 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 Oh, there he is. I think it's the third time he's fainted. <laughs> Oh, that's a nice little trick. You're like, no, we've only been out like 30 seconds. We're going to try it again. I didn't expect you to do it the first time. That's what you have to do. You have to throw him in the deep end. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's, you know, even if even if Lupin had turned out to be a straight-up bad guy, you know, he would have taught Harry so much that you'd almost still be thankful. Um, but you, you end up caring about this character even more than you think. Like You just care about him as a as someone who's breaking some rules to, to help this kid for the greater good. And then when you realize he has a a condition, you know, a, a life-threatening condition in terms of both himself and others, it's quite tragic. Um, in fact, he finds two surrogate fathers in this st- story uh, who appear to be bad and good in turns and they both have to leave for various reasons but they remain as sort of guardians and i guess that's sort of what was the last battle thing of the final book or movies was supposed to be so they had established all these adult figures who weren't always around but the, she around jk rowling sort of maintained them in the films and then they came back in the time of greatest need man he's so convincing in this role I thought it was here when he cast a spell late in the movie the music actually cuts out when he screams it and you think it's going to be so cheesy but the the, the dedication and the devotion and the seriousness and the concentration on his face you're just totally with it you know I mean on paper wands and light spells it's it's nothing really groundbreaking but when you have great actors and look at this, like, yeah, steampunk, I say cyberpunk, sorry. You look at the steampunk stuff, you know, with the mechanical models of the planets going around. It looks like the Oracle from the Dark Crystal again. Um, I just can't say enough about this production. Now, this was like a $130 million budget in 2004, which has got to be close to like $180, $200 million. now. That's a big fucking budget, but... You know, rather than just throwing it all in CGI, I mean, for the time, the CGI looks pretty good. I still think Lord of the Rings, which came out, you know, one, two, three years before this, is probably looked better on a lower budget. But they had to pay for so many actors. And not that they're all super high budget, but just getting the actors and training them and scheduling them and flying them around. Oh, here they are for the first time in like relatively normal clothes. I love it. He's wearing like Under Armour. Uh, Weasley's got a, Rod's got a, uh, like an ugly Christmas sweater. Um, man, Emma Watson with zip up hoodies. 
just a badass. Look at those long legs. It's funny to see that movie that really little to see clips or pictures from the like the first movie. Oh, uh, here it is. Right, the committee members took turns talking about why we were there. Look, he's got his th- his pants hiked up. Is great. Uh, I'm just gonna call him Hodor. <laughs> yeah. So at first he's just complaining about the bureaucracy, and then a uh, Buckbeak. That's the Griffin. Sorry, I know it's not called a Griffin, people, but I'm doing what I can. <laughs> you know. So this is it. This is exactly halfway through the movie and this is where the whole thing changes because it's setting up the time travel story that you don't even is coming because all these tragedies start happening and you're going oh my god this, this is dark for any movie what's going on people dying animals getting executed like especially for a harry potter movie this is why the time travel thing is so great because you're, you're especially if you're a harry potter fan you must be pretty depressed you know um in like 20 to 30 minutes from now when, when everyone and everything is being killed or chased or you know destroyed and they're like nope we're gonna pull a little harry potter trick and make things a little bit better but not too much better i love how this movie ends I, we'll get back to it spiders all oh, right but now we know he's scared of spiders and that's what's great this is the x-men thing too it's not just sharing powers but sharing fears opening up to one another and that's the thing that people don't realize like why kids read comic books but especially when you read the x-men i think as a kid or whether you're reading harry potter as a kid is the magic is great yes the world building awesome storytelling fantastic funny dialogue scary stuff I love the handheld, slightly out of focus cam. He's not afraid to use. I mean, he really makes the Harry Potter universe feel real. I, like I felt like if I stumbled across this place, and you know, in Northern England or in Scotland in the hills, like I wouldn't be totally surprised. You know, now he's, now he's got the sweatshirt on. It's great, great job, Alfonso Cuarón. Great job. And as many people have pointed out, I can't believe I've gone this long without saying it. If you only see this movie and this is the only harry potter experience you ever have no more books no other movies then you will feel so fulfilled and you'll even want to rewatch it now i ended up seeing the two or three movies after this with my sis because it's like a thing that we did when we could um and i enjoyed them all but this one always stuck out and i actually texted her um yesterday when i was thinking about doing this and i was rewatching the other one and, she, and i said you know which of the movies are your favorite and she goes i said and i said to her i said azkaban was the was mine by far and she goes she was like yeah that's the only one i really remember i remember loving that one so and if you look at the polls online all the fans polls the critics i mean everyone pretty much thinks this is the best harry potter movie i think uh and the fact that it made the least amount of money just goes to show you that, you know, audiences are not always going to gravitate towards the best thing. I mean, Transformers makes a billion dollars per movie. Fast and Furious makes a billion dollars per movie. And we're talking about a difference of, you know, 100, 150 million between all the movies. They all made fucking bank. They all made like 800 million to a billion territory. Here's Snape being very Snapey. Oh, Alan Rickman, goddammit. You just listen to him talk forever. So, I mean, to say dry and sardonic, they just, they don't have words. They don't have strong versions of those words. 
other than adding very, 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 very in front of them that can possibly describe um, Alan Rickman. I'm still not clear what this document is, so I'm just going to keep talking about big picture stuff and about how much I love the fucking actors. Um, now, I did want to say, um, for I just want to talk for a minute about the importance of having all of these old, experienced actors. You know, usually when you hear um, younger actors uh, praise um, older actors that they've worked with, the word that you often hear is generous. It's not just a matter of being older and better and wiser and more experienced. It has to do with putting in your best performance, but also creating an atmosphere where younger actors, and the younger the actors are, the more important this is, creating an atmosphere of comfort. I mean, look at these two storied, amazing English actors. And young, young Radcliffe right there. You know, they're, they're being their Shakespearean selves, but they're also being extremely playful and treating the material with the reverence and seriousness that it deserves, but also the joy and the playfulness. That was an important exchange right there, by the way. Um, you know, that you would have uh, Snape and Lupin sort of, you know, at odds with one another. I remember trying to piece that together the first time I saw it. And, you, you know, you throw in um, Gary Oldman, who is just like, I think I really have come to like Gary Oldman, even though I don't love all of his performances. But he is, is the chameleon to end all chameleons. You can't even recognize him physically in this movie when he finally appears um, in front of the screen. And the voices that he can do and the accents and the stuff he can do with his, his, his face and his body is just crazy. And you throw in Emma Thompson, and like those are like four, you know, members of of, uh, of acting royalty from England, which is a huge club. It's all very well deserved. In later movies, you had Brendan Gleeson, we had John Hurt. I mean, there's so many; it's, it's hard to even keep track of Helena Bonham Carter. You know, Rafe Fiennes ends up being Voldemort somehow. I think it helps that Harry Potter is a very English book you know and that it's it's one that is clearly from england but it's also really about england the way that you know middle earth is in a way but this is even way more english because middle earth brings in scandinavian myths it brings in germanic myths <laughs> there's yeah I, i'm not gonna lie i, I kind of like weasley i kind of like ron ronnie boy and I think Rupert Grit is actually very ub, much not this guy in real life. And so this is one of those cases where if the character annoys you, that's supposed to happen. Uh, that's why the character's there. And it probably is one of those that just doesn't translate as well from the books. Because y- you don't have to keep sort of looking at him in the books. Look how uncomfortable uh, Emma... M- um, and Watson is here. This is... Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Emma Thompson just... 
oh man, all these Emmas are throwing me off. Uh, Ebba Thompson completely just pisses the shit out of Hermione. You know, it was important that Hermione also get kind of wound up and angry and aggressive and annoyed, uh, as well as Harry. And here's where the split is. Right. So he's going to bring it back. Here's here's a lazy, lazy Ron. Fine, see you later. <laughs> you know, why am I even friends with you? So yeah, I mean, the older actors clearly bring up the younger actors, and uh, with Emma Thompson, that's kind of a minor, uh, although great, small role. Um, you have the, those three older gentlemen that that I mentioned, and the three main young actors, and it's just the perfect balance. And you throw in Dumbledore. Um, uh, with uh, Michael Campbell as Dumbledore and, uh, and Emma Thompson and some other support players. I didn't really have time in the beginning to shout out his horrible family and, and their horrible friends, uh, his adoptive family. I mean, to have to be the the actors on screen in front of 100 million people who are watching the movie and be mean to Harry Potter. Oh, this is great. She's totally, um, she reminds me of, of Tilda Swinton here a little bit. She's being possessed. So this is probably the fourth time I've seen this movie. Uh, I watched it yesterday in preparation for this, and then I probably saw it once since 2004 when I initially saw it. Radcliffe just killing in his responses. Um, I've never really been able to figure out the logic. I'm sure if you've read all the books and seen all the movies numerous times, it would uh, it would come together a little bit more. But for me, with these sorts of movies, like for example, I saw I couldn't get through the first Hunger Games movie. But I did see the second, and I saw the third, again with my sister, I think. Uh, I didn't see the conclusion, although it's on Amazon Prime, so I might finally check it out. Um, you know, I can always watch Jennifer Lawrence, even in pulpy performances. Um, oh, there's the executioner. Okay, so here's, this is it. This is it. it. And this is the outfits that they wear for the rest of the thing. And this is what I always remember. Specifically, uh, Emma Watson in the pink Zebra putty in Harry Potter with the, uh, the, the, the blue, the navy blue, uh, jacket and t-shirt, you know, the, the, everything from here on out is incredibly memorable. Starting with this, she holds it right to his throat. I, I have a still shot of that. I think that's going to be the photo that I put on the, sorry, Harry Potter. I know it's, it's your book, but that, that photo right up the uh boom <laughs> i think i was cheering i was laughing and cheering when i saw this i'm like who is this girl she's out of her fucking mind it's fantastic um yeah the, sh- the shot of the wand right up against his neck and, and quadone shoots her from below that's a hero shot especially when you have a little person like 12 year old emma watson you kind of shoot her from below right up her arm with the outstretched arm with the uh the wand 
Here it is. God, this was heartbreaking in the theater. It was really sad. Because this is the event that sets off the chain of horribleness, you know, over the next, like, 20, 25 minutes before they realize that they can they can change things. So, I'm just going to set it up here. When time travel is done right, I love it. The John Connor Terminator stuff, fantastic. I think I'm way more fascinated with the John Connor time loop than most people are, but I think it's just because most people don't realize that it's the single best uh, sort of popular culture example of the time tra- time travel paradox that's ever been made. Like, if Einstein was around to witness the Terminator and the John Connor paradox, I, I think it's one that, that, that he would use. So that's one that just... Uh, that just distills the, the time travel paradox down so neatly and efficiently that the excesses of the movies, I, I don't even care about the later movies that much. Because all you need to do is the first one. How do you send back your own father to conceive you? It seems impossible. And the reason I bring that up is because there's a moment... And maybe this doesn't add up, so we'll watch this closely, right? So this is the beginning of the time loop. So they just, I think I just missed it. They just got hit by some, they got pelted by something from outside. They don't know where it comes from. Okay, that shot, that long shot there, you're going, it feels like someone's watching them. Who threw the stuff in there? Turns out later that that was them. That was, not just them, it was fucking Hermione (laughs) throwing it at them. Future Hermione come back to the past to throw it at them and it looks like they're just going through all the same motions when they go through this the next time around and you have to ask yourself the question you always ask which is how many times has this happened because anytime that the, the past depends on the future as much as the future depends on the past is you know on paper theoretically an infinite time loop by definition Now, if time is just another dimension like space, where it's all existing at once, but you just move along, you know, in the direction of the arrow, but it's all there, and if you were able to exist in a reality where you could experience it like space and travel in different directions along time's arrow, then you affecting future and future affecting past at the same time because there's no real distinction. It's just your experience that's changing. Not the placement of things. Look at this. I thought they were going to stop this for sure in the in the movie. I think me and my sister gasped. Boom. You have the crows flying. I mean, this is like Game of Thrones shit. 2004. The third Harry Potter movie. They turned this into a dark, horror, violent Morally ambiguous. Oh, there's the rat. Bites him. Morally ambiguous, you know, teen horror flick with magic and growing up and even a little bit of relationship stuff, I guess, with Hermione and Ron. By the way, that was that shot back there where she grabs Ron and it feels a little unnatural. Like you'd think she would grab Harry, although she's already kind of cuddled him. And he sort of 
you know, hugs her. I mean, they're just so physically comfortable with each other. You know, I mean, they spent, they basically spent from the age of, let's see, Emma Watson's 26. So she was born in 91. So she's 13 here. So she's probably 12 when they make this. So she's probably nine when they made the first movie. Look how scary this is. I couldn't believe it. They just killed that poor flying beast. You know, they just killed the thing. Then the, the the wolf or the dog sucks him down into the tree. Now you have this evil ant-like creature. I mean, this really looks like an ant right there, just without a face. See so this mean ant-like creature who clearly is a is a uh, a wild tree that the ants are are not uh, um not watching and <laughs> properly keeping in place. Boom! That looks super real. Up oh, there go the glasses. <laughs> this is the fun adventure stuff and this is why you really remember the end for me more it's all the magic-y stuff that happens before and then in and around the school in the first half is really cool eye candy but it's almost too much but but this sort of stuff you know with the giant tree just smashing them all over the place and big werewolves and dogs biting and grabbing you know her face is getting all cut up I just remember at this point in the movie being like, you know, I, I, if you recall at the beginning of this commentary, you know, the movie grabbed me right from the get-go as being weirder and darker and just different than my expectations. And so I opened myself for the movie. But now I'm going, I don't know how far they're going to take this. I mean, they just executed, you know, long drawn out, execution of that poor griffin which i know isn't a griffin i apologize um it is called hold on buckbeak so they killed that poor fucking buckbeak right in front of the kids after they tried to save it like multiple times and we know it's good because of how well it treated harry dumbledore let it happen He's supposed to be the good guy. We don't know if we can trust Snape. We don't know what, what, uh, I keep wanting to call him Lupus. What Lupin, what Lupin's motives are. Uh oh. Here's the big confrontation. And this is why the movie's so brilliant. There he is, Gary Oldman. Can barely recognize him. He must have lost so much weight. So, uh, so here's, here's where all the plot turns you think are happening. You're an hour and a half in. They just seem to be going on an adventure. I remember rewatching, so I was rewatching this yesterday. Okay. And I'm going, I know this isn't the end. I know there's way more movie time. I have no, I cannot remember who ends up being the good guys and the bad guys here. And it turns out that none of the three main guys are, are bad guys. That they're all good guys that have gotten caught up in, in badness for various reasons. So you think now these are both traitors. These two. Let's kill him. Oh my god, Emma Watson. Just so I can turn this up. Just killing it. That's Hermione. 
I mean, again, I think it was probably written this way in the book, but Cordon could tell. And, and if you've worked with kid actors, female actresses, like everything else in life, females just grow and evolve more quickly than men. And as great as Radcliffe is, she's a fully functional, uh, you know, actress here. That just happens to be in a 12-year-old's body. She has a natural neck. And I think they, they were screening for feistiness for Hermione's character because I guess there had been three or four of the books probably published at least by the time the first movie was being made. And they had an idea of where her character was going. What I didn't know was that Harry was going to be feisty and easy to anger and willing to you know physically defend himself and not you know be kind of a dark figure i mean i, I and i i think maybe one of the reasons this movie didn't make up oh, there snape didn't make you know more money was because whether you had read the books or not and seen the first couple of films, I love this. They're all pointing wands at each other and dewanding one another. That's such, you know, they should just tie it to their wrist. It's just too easy to, to, to dis, uh, disarm one another. So here are the three, the three, uh, the three princes of English acting. I don't want to talk too much here because of all the plot exposition. So yeah, so I'm going, okay, trying to figure out who's who. And this is what's so brilliant. Is that in the best time travel books, movies, video games, you have to set up the time travel in a way where everything does feel slightly wrong not good or bad not not good or evil because evil's part of of reality right but this is like harry even is acting out a character for himself you want to set up the thing so they're just slightly off and so that when you time travel it's less that you're changing things and more that you're setting the natural order back on course you know I mean there's there's a notion that you know let's put it this way good and evil are, are moral and ethical judgments um, values assessments and so forth but right and wrong when it comes to um reality has more to do with uh <laughs> this is great the dueling wands and the mouse boom up oh, they got him that was a great transition that was a quote on camera trick there they had just enough dust and just enough camera movement and blur to uh to actually you know change change shots and, and insert the actor there make it seem like he morphed they didn't even have to really do a morphing effect. I'd have to slow that down to see, but I think that was just great camera work by Quodon. <laughs> that was the hold me back, hold me back. Um, right, and everything comes back to his his parented. That's what, you know, that's the Skywalker thing. That's the Atreides thing in Dune. 
you know. Tolkien, you know, one of the things that makes Tolkien's work a little bit more nuanced, if you could say that, about something that's over the top as Lord of the Rings, is that you can look at Gandalf as Jesus, you can look at Aragorn as Jesus, you can look at you know Galadriel even, or Elrond, you can look at Frodo as Jesus. There are many, many sort of super saviors in the Lord of the Rings. And so it's actually true teamwork. And so, you know, at the end of this, I can't remember who it is, compliments Hermione for being, you know, the the most powerful young witch there. And he's, the, you know, and Harry's supposedly the most powerful young wizard. Um, and, uh, you know, but because they structure it, because it's personal with with Voldemort when it comes to Harry, because of the prophecy, you know, it, the, the, the story becomes self-fulfilling in terms of the structure of it and it being in the focus on Harry, even though when you get to the end and you look back, even me, who's seen half the movies but knows the whole general story, you look back and, ev- you know, everyone involved is... is of all the good guys are our saviors, and even the bad guys are fulfilling roles. So how does this connect back to time travel? Well, so the theory is that there is a right and wrong to reality, and that the right flow of reality is just what keeps the universe functioning. And this has to do with the anthropic principle, which I won't have to go through here, but that in our universe, in the, in the um, you know, if you believe in the quantum notion that there's an infinite number of universes out there, nevertheless, we are existing in one of those infinite universes. But if you have a Donnie Darko type event, of which I think this is more related to the Donnie Darko scenario, where it's less about constantly going back and forth between past and future, and future into past, to do various things. Um or just warring factions, like with Skynet and the humans, you know, using time travel as, as, as a weapon of war, this is more, you know, when the engine, in Donnie Darko at the beginning, from a plane that doesn't exist, falls on Donnie's room, and he slept walk, he happens to sleepwalk that night, it doesn't kill him, he spends the whole movie realizing that he needs to be in bed when the thing falls and that's what's going to restore order to the universe and otherwise everything's going to be torn apart and even though it's going to result in his death even though it's going to result temporarily in his girlfriend's death shout out to jenna malone <laughs> another great young actress of uh, this generation e i think no she's a bit older Let's see, Donnie Darko was 2001. Jenna Malone would have been 14. Yeah, she's a few years older than these kids. Uh-oh, here comes the werewolf. Oh, look, he shoots right up on him. That's awesome. Transition. Oh, man. This is so scary. I mean, I'm watching this in a window on my computer. You know, as I'm going between Wikipedia and making sure the sound recording's okay. But this was so scary in the theater. And so, I'll stop with my philosophizing of time travel for the moment. What I was trying to get to was, when this starts happening, it confirms that 
you just know that the last 20 minutes, starting from the death of Buckbeak, they're just something that feels off. You know, the, the fabric of reality, forget good and evil, or even good and bad, the fabric of reality is just out of whack, and something needs to change. Now, luckily, in this story, it's about saving people, and we don't have to have a Dottie Darko-esque sacrifice, where he knowingly kills himself, essentially, um, in order to save everyone. Well, actually, they all would have died if the universe got ripped to shreds. Um, and then... Oh, God, this is so scary. Yeah. Um, actually, Quadone resists some some jump scares. <laughs> Looking for Grant. He's so cartoonish. I, I, I almost like it. You know, it's a good contrast to the bravery of the other characters. Yep, Snape turns out to be a good guy here. And so if you if you just jump from here into the final battle or whatever, the Battle of Hogwarts or whatever they call it. If, okay, this looks like not as good as Game of Thrones, but better than Ghostbusters, somewhere in between. But, you know, Snape isn't acting here. It turns out that he does have a connection with Voldemort and did flirt with the dark side. And it still has a connection to the dark side. But it's all from past things that he regrets. And part of the reason he's so mean to um, Harry turns out to be just regret and anger at himself. Uh-oh. Um, uh, you know, o- over letting Harry's parents die. Especially his mom, who I guess he had a thing for. Okay, so someone's making calls to him. You're going, that voice sounds familiar. Who is it? Well, turns out to be Hermione from the future. Jumping back to the past, which we're going to see. Oh, the poor dog. Um, yeah, I mean, killing, you know, killing wonderful flying creature things, dogs and werewolves killing, you know, scratching each other to death. I mean, this is some serious shit. This is great. This this is probably a set here with these giant trees. It looks like um Merkwood is fantastic. I'm not Merkwood, sorry, Fanghorn. Fanghorn Forest. What the madness would have led them in there? I just do my Scottish accent more. I've been trying to break it out on it, my role play game of playing a dwarf a hill rogue hill dwarf. And, you know, Harry's come to see, in a short amount of time, the fact that this guy, who he's just getting to know, uh, or know about, and Lupin, who he's learned more about, and Snape, they're all connected to his family, you know? And it turns out that all of these people are actually trying to save Harry Potter. is really cool. One of the reasons I, I wish I had given the series a try. Um... Because now that it's spoiled, I'm sure it's still a wonderful read, but. Right, so he tries to. He tries to protect himself. And, uh. Yeah, he tries to protect himself. And he tries to protect, uh. 
God, this is so crazy. Um, Gary Oldman. Sorry, Sirius Black is his name. Sirius. That's the life being... That's the, the kiss of death, I think, as they call it. It's, it's a kiss. I don't, I'm not sure they call it the kiss of death, but it's essentially the kiss of death. So he sees this, like, reindeer creature. This is so bizarre. It looks like from Princess Mononoke. And he has a vision as, as the spirits close in. The Dementors. It looks like a reindeer. And then he says that it's his dad. It turns out that he sees himself doing it. So that's what doesn't make sense in the time loop. Is he does exactly this. But I guess he does it in time before the Dementors do the kiss of death to... Yeah, he's dead. Before they're able to do the kiss of death to, uh, to Sirius. Oh, wait, no. Now he comes back. Oh, he is alive. So Harry Potter sees vision... Now he's going to faint again. This is like the fourth or fifth time he faints. It's the only flaw of the movie. He's just constantly going unconscious. But, you know, anyone young wielding great power, it's, it's bound to happen. Does Luke ever just faint? Right, he wakes up. He says, I saw my dad. Sent the Dementors away. The Dementors. Oh, 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 I see what's happening. Scabbers. <laughs> I think he's I think he's good. I I like uh I like Rupert Grant honestly. And he's been in some he's been in Snatch, he's in Snatch. He's been in some cool stuff. He's still getting work. You know. When you when you're a smart charismatic actor trying to act like a dope, it can be tough. But they weren't going to cast a dope as a dope because they needed they needed someone with some skill in in, in the the look that they were looking for. Okay, so this is interesting. So Dumbledore very quickly, in an offhand way, tells them where he's being held. Right, he knows that Hermione has the time machine. <laughs> Harry's confused. This was the great twist. It wasn't just that they were going back in time, that Dumbledore would tell him to do it. That he didn't want to know it, basically. The returns. Oh, look at that. I remember that. That's a very Ian McKellen thing. I mean, they're really, like, almost identical. That little twitch he did with his eye and the, the finger. Three times should do it. Right. He's telling, them ex- he's telling them exactly how to do it. Retrace their steps from the point when everything started going wrong. And that's how the, that's how the fixing the, the fabric of reality time loop works. Now, they're going to end up here. And he's gonna. It's very. <laughs> she slaps him. Oh, I wonder if that was written into the script. That's the thing. You you know that 
actors have great chemistry. I don't care what age they are. You know they have great chemistry when there's a little moment like that where she slaps the hand and you don't know if it's you know rehearsed or not. I think they're going to end up back here, but like three feet to the side. Look at her. Oh, my God. You think she's going to kiss him? Reaches over. Boom. She's taking care of it. And this this was, to put, this is the thing. And this is what I was getting to with time travel. I'm sorry for all the rambling because I'm trying to figure it out as I'm watching it and explain it to you, you guys or just to myself. Is th- th- that, that th- the reason this twist is great is because it's Hermione. She's been doing it all along. She's been researching it. She's been practicing how to use it. I don't know if she pulls this again with the time machine. I'm not sure how they write this out of the story because this would seem to be a pretty invincible weapon to turn back time. Yeah, (laughs) Harry Potter is still unclear what's going on. So, in the end, Hermione really ends up being the the heroine of this whole thing. Oh, here we go. They see the punch. (laughs) Time Turner. Yeah, I can't remember who McGonagall is. So why did they give it to her? Probably because she's the smartest. She's Maybe she's not the most powerful, or the potential for the most powerful, but she's the most developed in terms of both brains and brawn, as we see right there. Good punch. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. I'm hoping and I'm, I'm thinking that... Uh, that cordon man is he good with these wide shots here you know hold holding it holding it holding it most most yeah most directors would be like switching camera shots every three seconds he holds it 10 15 20 seconds he's still following them and this is what made it so memorable was we thought that we had that short little adventure bit with the tree and the werewolf and everything but this is the real chase scene you know and you get to see it unfold again and it's so beautiful and they're still wearing the same clothes which look like modern day clothes i mean this is just a brilliant brilliantly conceived movie and the fact that a director like alfonso cuaron who's known for either realism you know like itumama or like hard science fiction like children of men or gravity um you just throw them into something like this he had never read the books, became a passion project of him for two years. He's probably BFF with all the actors. They all loved it. I'm sure they know more than anyone. I mean, critics and fans understand this, but the, the actors and the production you know, team on, on the movies understand that this is where the movies went from kind of a fun you know, interpretation of the books to like, you know, really, really great pg-13 fantasy fair that's that's drawn from the books but has taken on a life of its own stylistically and i just wish he had almost gone peter jackson and done two or three of these i think it would have stayed maybe with the whole series and they certainly take a lot of a lot of things from it and they had to because this was so liberating to uh to to emma watson and uh, daniel radcliffe up here it is this is where she's throwing it. Harry still doesn't put this together, that they need to go through the course of events up to the moment where things went totally to shit. Yeah. So does he feel it right there? Or is he sort of memory remembering what that felt like? 
the first time it happened or the previous time because we don't know how many times this has happened. Now, I suppose if the way they signed it up, um, and I guess this is the difference from John Connor. I mean, it's a huge difference. Is that in Terminator, if you jump from the future, oh no, you're still in the past. Never mind. Yeah, you would still see yourself in the past. That's not different. So yeah, so I guess the one explanation for it not happening over and over again is that you would start seeing an infinite number of views, you know, copies of you looking at you, looking at that copy, looking at that copy, looking at that copy. That's cool how they almost threw it off. Now, did that happen in the first time through? And that's the other great thing about about when movies execute time loop stuff well is that it just makes it so much more rewatchable because you're looking for clues the next time around you know watching the film yeah she almost gave it away there but that's all part of the plan You know, Radcliffe has his sort of a raspy edge to his voice in this movie that is very uh, appealing, and uh, you know he he hates mean people. He wants to see things right. I mean, it's just like Luke Skywalker. You know, um, luckily, unlike Luke, he's in a situation where he's surrounded by mostly good people who who are channeling his you know, his anger in a a more positive direction. Although that's part of why, and you know, that's part of why characters like Snape are so important to have people that are sort of, you know, dilly dallying in the dark side as possible temptations for Harry Potter. I mean, we briefly think, you know, when, uh, when David Thewlis as Lupin, uh, freeze, um, you know, reveals and then sort of freeze Gary Oldman as Sirius Black that Doolin had been manipulating Harry the whole time. And Harry's never sure who to trust in this. I mean, this is really different than the black and white nature of the first couple movies. Okay, so this is when the, uh, when Book, book Break, Break Beak, Book Break? Buckbeak. This is when Buckbeak starts getting really cool looking. Is when he's interacting with them, eating the food. Um, I don't know how they do it when they when he just snatches it out of Emma Watson's. I mean, look, she completely is selling that that thing is there. Yeah, it's not that she's braver than Harry, but she's only braver than Harry. Well, she's braver than Harry. The reason she's braver than Harry is because th- there's a difference between being brave and being stupid. And the smarter you are and the more aware you are of how dangerous a situation really is, to confront that then makes you more dangerous and he hits the pumpkin. So that's the first major change. Okay, so now the timeline has already started shifting in a different direction. So they found the means of escape. The I think Harry's put it together at this point. And the cool mechanic here is not just that he realizes that he's the one that does it and not his father. 
um, it was cool that he, you know, in the previous loop that he saw himself and thought it was his father, but that he, you know, he's learned it having done it, even though it wasn't him, it was his future self doing it. He says that, you know, uh, we'll get to it, but he says something like, oh, this is where they go down to the tree. Oh, and they see Snape follow up behind. And so now we actually don't see all of the, the you know, the, the unmasking and the character reveal exposition that goes on. Now we wait. Oh, that's so cool. We just use your imaginations. Everything inside should happen exactly as it did before. The only change from their perspective was, you know, did current did this Emma Watson briefly almost give themselves away a couple minutes ago who cares they're waiting for nighttime the moon has to rise the werewolf has to come out and, and but what this also does is it's all about perspective and you realize that Quadon was giving us these sort of far shot camera angles the first time through the loop and we didn't know it was a loop and other than just being artistically brilliant, we get these moments where, you know, it's not just about changing things to a slightly different course to be better, or, 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 or at least repairing the fabric of reality or whatever, but that it's character building. Look at her. She's so sad. She's so protective. I always say, I mean... Having loyal friends, male, female, or otherwise, is great. Having having a best friend or a very close female friend who's protective of you, as as a guy from a platonic standpoint, I mean, you know that that's that can be a fierce form of loyalty because that maternal instinct kicks in. And I don't think I'm being sexist of saying that. Look at her; she's so concerned about him. Now, I, I'm assuming we learn more about Hermione's past and current, you know, inner life in later works. That would be of great interest to me. Because if this movie is anything to go by, she's got to have basically equal billing from here on out. And, you know, and, and I think what was brilliant with, with Rowling was the books were entitled Harry Potter and the XYZ. <laughs> here it is, yeah. I wonder in what order they shot the scenes. Did they shoot the future stuff first? They shoot the past stuff first? You know, did Quaron just mix everything up? This is great. I didn't think about that. <laughs> Not a lot of straight up jokiness in the late part. The stakes are too high. But uh, these kids know how to lighten it a little bit when they need to. Yeah, honestly, you could care less that the werewolf looks a little janky. So I'm just with these kids. But anyways, you know, by the time they got to, you know, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire or whatever, it, it's, it's not saying the book is about Harry Potter and then a Goblet of Fire and then there's these other characters. It's like, no, it's, a, it's from the Harry Potter universe. You know, it's the same way. Uh, think about it this way. You know, we, we learned at the end of Lord of the Rings um, that, you know, that there and back again, which was the original name for The Hobbit, was essentially autobiographical, written by Bilbo, and then Frodo wrote the sequel in Lord of the Rings. Oh yeah, baby, here comes Buckbeak. 
I don't. That always surprises me in a good way. This thing turns out to be so clutch that the first time when Harry rides it, you know, and they've got the connection, and then he attacks the horrible kid. That was so scary. Yep, they're hugging each other in a non-sexual way. They must have just been really good buddies. They must be so close. I mean, it's possible after like 10 years that it just wasn't enough and they just occasionally, you know, send text messages or something. But I have to think that these two are really close in real life. How can you not? I mean, they spend more time together than brothers and sisters do. I mean, you know, when I was in middle school, I, I was locked in my room playing computer games and reading books and didn't want to talk to anyone, including my sister. And then I didn't really, you know, want to hang out with her much until I was a senior in high school and she was a freshman. And then all of a sudden I wanted, you know, us to have a better relationship and I was going off to college and then she was in college. And so, you know. These guys are literally spending months and months and months together every single day for years. And with an 18-month schedule, they essentially get, I think it's probably eight months on. That's the one there. The music slightly cuts out briefly. You had to do it, though. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) it's less dramatic than a lightsaber duel in some ways because you just don't have the, you know, the visceralness of, of, of a lightsaber battle of a sword fight. But you know, what I keep trying to say is this whole time travel journey is great because of the way it makes these people feel real and you really rooting for them. As his nose bleeding from that exertion, that's so cool. I'm, I'm a big fan of that that concept. That you just, your body starts sort of breaking down. Does he faint again? No, he stays awake this time. Maybe that was the whole point of all the fainting. Oh, right, they have to complete the mission. So that was it. No, that's, Right, I saw myself conjuring the Patronus before me. I knew I could do it this time because I'd already done it. Yeah. No, does that make sense? No. Yeah, what he's really saying is he just knew he had it in him because he had done it before. Not that he learned anything, just that he was confident, basically. So this is the first change. Everything else was according to plan. So the whole thing hinged around saving that animal's life and then going through the motions that they knew were supposed to happen keeping the animal alive and with them and then rescuing him. It's a brilliant, it's absolutely brilliant. And I'm going to give all the credit in the world to JK Rowling on this one. I mean, quite on made it happen. This looks fantastic. Eat your heart out, you know, Helm's deep or whatever. The school looks, looks really spectacular, but, uh, JK Rowling, I mean, it's just such a cool device to make the entire success of the time travel mission hinge on that that creature, which we thought was just dead. And this is so totally prior performance. I mean, Harry's attraction to this guy is only because, you know, he was wrongly accused and because he was a friend of his parents. Look at how Hermione walks away so they can have a moment. (laughs) 
Quaron could have totally cut that so we don't even see her disappear. But it's such a cooler character touch and directorial touch to have her knowingly walk, you know, she's probably still listening, but walk far enough away that they can have a real moment. And every, you know, and when he said, every time he says, I know you've heard this, you know, you've probably heard this too many times, but you really look like your father. It just gives me chills because of the performance of these two great actors. I mean, I was going to say, if you put Daniel Radcliffe's feet to the fire, I don't think you have to put his feet to the fire. You know, I mean, let's put it this way. Ah, uh, you really are the British witch of your age, right? So it just means female wizard. Yeah. Yep, Hermione is the best. That's the thing. Potential only takes you so far. You know, is there some witch or whatever, or some female wizard with more potential there? Maybe. But they're never going to reach their full potential the way she does. That's so cool. He just flies off. We have to go. Oh, is it before the clock strikes something? I forget how this final bit goes. So cool. All the mechanical clock stuff, all all the steampunk stuff they've got on is great. In what? Good night. I love how how Dumbledore plays that. As you know, is he just completely ignorant, or is he pulling the Gandalf acting ignorant because he just doesn't want to know? Right? How did you get there? <laughs> yeah. All right. You build up the whole time that this guy's a dope, so that they could pull the wool over his eyes. Look at those smiles. Oh, they're adorable. They really do look different, though. I mean. You know, she's still, they're still smiling like kids. Now they smile like adults. Um, other than the Frankenstein, I was really disappointed at the Frankenstein movie with James McAvoy and, uh, as, as Victor Frankenstein and um, Radcliffe as Igor that looked to be so funny. And those two would be, you know, seem great together. But he's got some great, uh, some great, serious dramatic roles coming in and uh you know Emma Watson just did a remake of Beauty and the Beast that's gonna make a billion dollars I resigned yeah so here's another fatherly figure leaving so he's left he's left with Snape Someone like me. Yep. More about outsiders. They all knew it. I mean, that was part of the, the the plan was that they could help him keep it, keep it together. But all it took was one major crisis and him to turn into a werewolf and cause lots of problems. Right. None of them made any difference. Yep. Yep. Which is great. They leave strands for a future movie. Saved Innocence. Yeah. Yeah. 
little bit like <laughs> Return of the King with all, with all the the endings, but it's very well earned, especially with this guy. <laughs> oh yeah, this is great. I mean, he was already breaking the rules to help this kid, but now he really can can help him without being constrained by uh, the bureaucracy of the Ministry of Magic. That's a really easy effect to do. You just pull it apart and then reverse the film, but it looks great. Anytime in a movie you see something break and come back together or something, it's they're just reversing it. I was going to try and get you a list of all the famous, you know, older actors and actresses that these kids got to work with over the course of eight movies, but it's just staggering. You can look it up on IMDb. There was at least five or six in this one. <laughs> Blames the twins. This is, I mean, so, right, so 30 minutes ago, it's looking so dark for a Harry Potter movie, then they turn back time in a really creative way that's all about character building, and has just enough, you know, time loop, mind fucks to keep you interested, and then a couple goodbyes, establishing relationships, and then, boop, Harry Potter goes off, and look at how they end this shot. I don't know if they'd still do this today, but this is classic, freeze frame. And they show the title again. I solemnly swear them up to no good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, being mischievous on purpose is is a distinction from someone who's just mischievous because they're a dick or just a troublemaker, you know? I mean, Harry's constantly getting accused of being a troublemaker, but in reality, you know, he's just trying to become the best, you know, wizard that he can and and uh and make things right in the world and uh you know in the tradition of messiah stories the messiah lead character is usually not the most three-dimensional and it's up to the actor to add that third dimension because otherwise you're just part of a prophecy and everything that you do is either harming the prophecy or helping the prophecy and if it's a prophecy, then everything you're doing is is leading to the prophecy, whether it seems harmful or helpful. So you have to add that emotional side. But that's why Hermione, you know, completes him, you know, compliments him so perfectly. Because she just keeps him grounded and aware that, yes, we're dealing with, you know, sorcerers of, of untold power like Voldemort. We're dealing with being kids learning magic and having to hide it from society which i didn't even get to the fact of about the uh, muggles which just, just seems to have a very negative connotation for regular people but you know given the, the trump administration and the fact that you know not just the people who voted for trump but the people that are seemingly just apathetic about what's going on and you know 
me being tied into very activist uh, group of ex- extended group of friends and and colleagues and and acquaintances uh it can be very jarring to see the level of almost willful ignorance in a general population and you know and, and liberal intellectuals uh, which you know essentially is what the wizarding class i think in the movies is supposed to represent is sort of liberal intellectuals like people that are actually smart and talented and want to help the world but are sort of better than people in some objective ways um none of which i have a problem with except that it's genetic but i can't even really have a problem with that because to a certain extent you know there are some genetic limitations on what we we can and can't do um, it's certainly less d- disturbing, uh, slightly less disturbing than sort of the Germanic geneticism of, of Tolkien, because it's just a little bit more ambiguous. Like, I, I think the whole twist, again, I- I'm sorry if I'm butchering this, I think part of the twist with Voldemort is that when he gets the notion of the prophecy in his head, it's possible that Harry isn't actually the Chosen One. He just serves as sort of the vessel of the Chosen One, like Donnie Darko. You know, he's tasked with it, but that's only to drive Voldemort into a spot where the combined efforts of everyone can sort of take him down ultimately. So who knows, maybe I will read these books eventually. Um, I think I was just so overwhelmed with its presence in our culture um and liked but wasn't super impressed by the later movies and i really feel like this movie gives me the experience now i think i maybe i will watch the two-part finale just to see you know the big fireworks and when they're fully grown and refines and you know everything go down um i think that may have to happen but in the meantime i hope you enjoyed this uh this was something that was not really on my list, but once I came up with it, because, you know, I, I, I saw Beauty and the Beast, I did my review, I talked a lot about it, I really loved it, I, I've always thought Emma Watson had great talent, I, I think it's clear now that she does, and as a 26-year-old who's made, you know, $9 billion movies or something like that, as well as some really interesting side projects um, in, in the indie sphere that, that she's going places, uh, I think Radcliffe likes taking challenging and off-the-beaten-path roles, but he's very well-respected, and he's also done theater work. Um, that's been very acclaimed. Uh, so this clearly worked out very well for them, as well as the fact that they're set for life with the money, um, I'm sure, which is great that they don't have to you know, base it on that. Uh, I know for a fact that Emma Watson did not take the Beauty and the Beast role for money. She was not going to do it at all until she saw the script and the vision that was going to be pretty dark and kind of political for a Disney property. It was a a loyal but also somewhat non-traditional take on on Belle um, from from the 90s Beauty and the Beast and then, of course, the original fairy tale. Um, But once I decided on it, I was like, okay, I'm going to rewatch it, and if I like it as much as I remember liking it, then I'm going to do it. So I'm going to, I did it, and there it is. So thank you folks so much for listening. This has been the Bizzlecast. I've been recording this late at night upstairs. I'm trying not to wake up my roommate, Kim, who who doesn't sleep very heavy, and I tend to be very loud. So it seems like I'm whispering a little bit. It's because I am. 
Um, I'm just enjoying this glorious end credit sequence. And, uh, yeah. Don't let the muggles get you down. <laughs> Bizzle out.